This is writer and game designer Robin D. Laws. And this is game designer and writer Kenneth Height. And this is our podcast, Ken and Robin Talk About Stuff. Bandwidth brought to you by Paul Grain Press. Stuff we're here to talk about in this episode include... Creative Vagueness. Chat GPT. Early 50s science fiction cinema. And chiropractors. Did you know that both of us, Ken and Robin, have written books and games for Atlas Games? This month, they're featuring products by us on sale. We're so honored. Atlas Games is doing a special for our listeners only. Use coupon code KENANDROBIN23, that's spell out A-N-D in Ken and Robin, to save 20% on your games and books at atlas-games.com. Like Robin's action-packed feng shui and conspiracy-drenched over the edge. Or Ken's mini-mythos series of Cthulhu-themed children's books, like Goodnight Azathoth and Clifford the Big Red God. So who writes our banter in these Atlas ads? Our good friend Michelle Nephew. Sometimes I think that power goes to her head a little. Like last month where she had me singing Christmas carols for Weird Little Elf? Yeah, I kind of noticed that. Yeah, this month Atlas Games is running a sale on products that two of us have written for them. But what does that have to do with me repeating, Michelle is a goddess and we bow before her greatness? Her script cues are even worse. I can't stop hitting myself. Ken, just because it's in the script notes doesn't mean you have to actually slap yourself. It's it's audio. It's a podcast. Our listeners can't see you. I don't feel so good. The things we do for our listeners. But at least this month, they're getting 20% off on books and games written by the two of us. Just head over to atlas-games.com for your exclusive discount on feng shui, over the edge, and mini mythos products. Then use the coupon code KENANDROBIN23 at checkout. The rattle of dice, or are they astragaloi, or is it a spinner? The thump of miniatures, or is it the fingers of the GM while he waits for you to make a decision? The crunch of an unspecified snack. And Peter Frampton coming alive. But which song? Welcome us into a vague and unsatisfying, at the moment, edition of the Gaming Hut. Because intentional vagueness is often unsatisfying. If I wanted to make stuff up, I wouldn't be buying a game book, he Ken, said. you're answering the question before you're posing it. Am I? <laughs> yeah. Do I do that a lot? I guess we'll never know. We'll I'm just going to leave know. that unsolved, Robin. No one, no one knows what this podcast is or what's going on. No one. No one. Uh, it's uh, Unsolved Mysteries in Published Setting Material. This is a concern of yours because you are writing a mega campaign, which has to do some explainage. Uh, when is it useful to leave them and when are you just being lazy? Right. What implicit contract do you establish with readers about the canon of your setting when you do this? Robin? And, and more specifically, the inspiration for this particular segment comes from I've started doing RPG prose writing tips uh, every Monday on uh, Mastodon, and now I've decided to do them on Twitter as well. And this one that I put out there a couple of weeks ago got a bunch of comments where people started taking the topic in different directions. And that seemed to me uh, as a hint that we should uh, expand on it since right. it's something that people are very interested in. So very often you will see, especially in the submitted drafts of emerging writers, but not always emerging writers, the developer will confront something where, particularly in setting material, uh, in this instance, the writer will say, well, no one knows about something. No one knows why the oracles retreated to the cave of unreason. And my contention is that that's a cop-out, especially when you're writing in the omniscient voice. So an obvious caveat to this is that if you are using the other style of writing material, where it's all from the point of view of a particular person in the world, and that person has limited knowledge, well, it would make absolute sense, although we can get to the question of whether it has game utility, mm -hmm. for that character to say, I do not know why the oracles retreated to the cave of unreason. But if you're the omniscient voice, first of all, that's absolutely a cheat, because if you are elsewhere in your setting document describing things for sure, that no one in the world necessarily knows, you have to do it across the board. You can't sometimes have omniscience and sometimes 
decide that you don't want to particularly work out, you know, why something happened. Yes. And it is also, I will go on to say, not useful for the GM, even when you're writing in a non-omniscient voice quite often, to be given just a sort of a, well, here's an unsolved mystery. Now, sometimes there's an unsolved mystery in a setting that's like the core question of that setting. And I've certainly done that before. The Mohalar War in Ashen Stars is the big, nobody knows what happens during this war because there is a big memory uh, reset at the end of this event. But that is implicitly a thing that is the core mystery at the center of an Ashen Stars campaign, possibly. And so that's a different matter than just going around and, you know, when you hit a particular question in your setting, well, I'm not sure what I want to do here. I'll just say, well, nobody knows. Yeah, as I alluded uh, before I was so rudely interrupted in the introduction, (laughs) if you are writing something for sale to a consumer, a presumably busy consumer with their own stuff to do, that's kind of a cheat. It's kind of a cop-out to be given a piece of the setting and then have no gameable information around it. I, I guess it's barely okay to write the Caves of Unreason somewhere on the map and then leave it unkeyed in the document. I guess that's barely okay. But if you're putting the trouble to do a whole key into the Caves of Unreason, if the Caves of Unreason have shown up in your text, there'd better be some gameable thing you can do with it. And that's my opinion about all game text. It should be gameable. It should be actionable at the table, potentially. So leaving something for the individual GM to make up, individual GMs always can make things up if they want to make things up. Presumably, you're doing the other half of the work and providing them with, at the very least, clever ideas to spark make ups or a canon truth about the setting that will inform later play. And to offer a, a, a sort of a vague speculation because you didn't want to be bothered, well, then that's not that important. Strip it back out and come up with something that you can play at the table. That's my opinion. Right. And certainly, you can give several options. And we both of us do that all the time. Um, and so my counterexample of a better way to uh, to do this, if you don't have one specific thing that you want to explain, you go, well, depending on your story needs, the oracles retreated to the Cave of Unreason to flee the wrath of the air gods or as part of a hundred year effort to meditate their way to the celestial realm. So that's not just one explanation, but that's two. So that does leave that open for the GM to engage and help to make the setting their own, but it doesn't give you nothing to work with and, you know, just throw the problem in your lap. Um, And there's also a a logical issue quite often I find, and I've spotted this in things that have gotten past the developers, particularly classic era stuff from the first or second wave of role-playing. I will spot things where it's like, no one knows why the oracles retreated to the Cave of Unreason. The Cave of Unreason is over here, and here's how your characters get there. <laughs> well, if the characters can go to the Caves of Unreason and talk to the people there, you need that answer. Because mm-hmm. the oracles know why they retreated, and the GM's going to need that answer to that question. And guess what? You've just stuck them. And I will, I'm often surprised by how it's like, well, you can't just leave that a mystery because these characters you're describing that they're you know just on the other side of the other x over here so you absolutely have to answer the question enough for the gm to have an answer and uh, again if that doesn't suit that particular gm story purposes they can change it but you've got to give them something at least to change and not a nothing and it uh, it sounds like an obvious point now that I'm. we're obviously saying it and agreeing really hard, but <laughs> you see it all the time. And the clever developer will nip it out and re- remove it and force you to come up with a, an idea, but makes it into print and quite frequently. Yeah, I, I guess um, since we both super agreed, we should maybe try to steel man the reasons you would do it, the reasons that you might leave some area of a hole. And I think one of the best reasons is you deliberately are signaling that this is something that GMs need to incorporate into their campaign if they're going to use it. Uh, Way back in the day, Steve Jackson Games had areas that were literally labeled areas of canon, doubt, and uncertainty for in nomine. And so if you wanted to find out, you know, does God have a sister or whatever, then that's an area of canon, doubt, and uncertainty. We're not going to explain it. You have to go figure it out. And so... By way of setting up a signpost and saying, 
here are areas of canon doubt and uncertainty that we will never come by and ruin in a later release. The Caves of Unreason, big area. But again, that is a slightly copy-outier version of the Mohalar War, where, as I recall, you gave many possibilities for what was going on in the Mohalar War, and by way of stoking uh, the GM's imaginations, even if it's an area of canon doubt and uncertainty, especially if it's in a fantasy world that no one's ever heard of and can't research on Wikipedia to get uh, inspiration, then you kind of do need to, even if you're marking it out to say, we will never explain the Caves of Unreason, we will never explain the actions of oracles, you've got to figure it out if you're going to have that as part of your game, there should at least be in-game speculation. What do the elves think? What do the uh, cave ogres who live in the caves of middling reason next door, what do they think, right? Right, which is the in-person way of, right. of giving multiple answers to the question mm-hmm. in Knights Black Agents. The question of what are vampires like is one that you leave open. And that, again, that's not a cheat because you give a whole bunch of different options. Yeah. And I, I think in particular, a couple of people responding to my original uh, tweet were very concerned about this issue because they like canon, they want to stick to canon, and they feel that they've been hosed in the past by a commitment to, well, we're just going to leave this area blank for you, and you get to decide. And then later, another writer comes along and answers the question definitively of why the oracles retreated to the Cave of Unreason, but you went the other way. You've already filled that in because you were like a an, an honest, good GM. You took it at face value that you would get to develop that part of the world and you wouldn't then wind up, oh no, now there's a whole story arc that's based on an answer to this question that somebody else left open and has now revealed, which I guess is getting us back into the broader issue of uh, meta plot and why that has fallen out of favor. Yeah. The degree to which players and customers are attached to your relatively arbitrary continuity is, I mean, you may think from your lordly perch as a designer that obviously a, a GM, as I just said, can make stuff up and change stuff if they want to, but a lot of players don't engage with the material that way, and they feel like it's a cheat to engage with the material that way, that for them, either some degree of, of mental satisfaction in, you know, mastery, or some degree of confidence in being able to talk about the same game with another player in another table, Whatever it is, they value even to that. Buy and use a particular source book. Right. Which, yeah. You know, the Caves of Unreason book is now it. It's like, wait a minute. Hey. <laughs> you told me nobody knew and nobody now it's a 300-page book. Well, nobody knew, but now they know. Yeah. Because they went up the path to talk to them. That's how they know. Right. Yeah. They just asked the ogres next door. I think that the problem with Metaplot is, is a juicy enough question that we can leave it for another segment. But if you establish a canon, either implicitly or explicitly, and I would argue in today's nerd environment, you're establishing one implicitly regardless, uh, it does behoove you to behave yourself and leave either signposts and then stick to them, or as I think is superior tech, and we've talked about earlier in this, sh- in this segment, give a lot of possible answers and let GMs decide. And then if one of those answers turns out to be the answer you do in the Caves of Unreason book, people will say, oh, okay, all right, I get it. That was fair. I don't feel as bad, right. I hope. But it's not. It's still not entirely fair if you picked they fled the wrath of the air gods and then there's an entire uh, book that just goes, oh, no, it's a hundred-year effort to meditate their way to the celestial realm. Um, and that still messes you over. So, for example, in the Yellow King, in the core book, it doesn't 100% pin down what the Carcosan royal family really wants and what they're doing. In Casilda's song, the previously alluded to mega campaign that I'm currently writing, it does have an answer to what the princesses are doing if you choose to play this mega campaign, mm-hmm. uh, which will probably be you know, the, the only Yellow King you play for a good long while because it's a really long <laughs> thing if you run the whole thing. But I go at that as lightly as I possibly can and still continue to leave choices for the GM where the GM is solidifying their own continuity within their own campaign. And again, can feel reasonably confident that there's not going to be another thing that's going to come around later and completely change that or blow that out of the water. And I have another cheat (laughs) in my pocket 
for Yellow King, even if that happens in that it's a game about reality shifts. Right. But, yeah. It's literally a game about uh, reality horror and not knowing what's going on. So that's right. part of the fun. Right. But similarly, Dracula dossier answers the question of what are vampires by saying, well, they're Draculas. Yeah. And again, if you go to all the trouble of playing the Dracula dossier, and then later there's another whole mega campaign in which they're alien amoebas, uh, you're not going to be cheated by that because you already had a ton of fun playing Dracula dossier and you can find a way to go, well, they used to be Draculas and now the alien amoebas have arrived, that those things are still not going to be so fundamentally incompatible that you've been cheated by having an unanswered question later answered in one adventure. And it's different to do that in something that's more optional than rather something that, well, the continuity is now X. Or something that's meant to be a, if we'd done the Romania source book for Knights Black Agents because we were insane and people had forgotten that Lonely Planet Romania exists, and we said, this is where Dracula's castle is, this is what Draculas are, this is what vampires are, and it was the kind of game where we were doing, you know, Shadowrun style, a source book for every, every location, or Vampire the Masquerade style, a source book for every location, then it would be really uh, tooth grinding to be told later, oh no, Dracula was an alien amoeba all along. The Romania source book is old hat. But I will point out that in Dracula dossier, Gar went to a great deal of trouble to say, oh no, Dracula's not Dracula's as you think they are. He could be volcano germ Dracula. And then the scores can really change. And so even within Dracula dossier, we're still playing the Knights Black Agents game of what are vampires exactly? So even if you've read the novel, you may not know exactly what's going on with Dracula. You just know what Van Helsing thought was going on with Dracula, because of course, Dracula's all in voice. It's none of it is omniscient. Right. So to sum up, give specifics, not just hand waving. When you're omniscient, be consistently omniscient. Own it. Own it. And when you are leaving something open in one book, keep it at least as open in subsequent follow-up books. And uh, on, on that note, I not only know a couple of possible things that are going on in the Cave of Unreason, but I think I know what this next commercial will be all about. Like you're an oracle. The skies above New Olympus are patrolled by caped crusaders. But these superior beings are far from heroes. They wield their powers with reckless disregard, serving the interests of corporate overseers and silencing those who oppose their will. You are Clara Keenig, investigative journalist for the pedestrian newspaper. You intend to prove that the privileged superhuman elite do not yet hold a monopoly on justice. Welcome to Alter Egomania, the newest setting for the Gumshoe one-to-one system. Featuring a quick start rules guide, printable problem and edge cards, and a starter adventure. Alter Egomania contains everything you need to run a one-player, one-GM game set in a universe of corrupt superheroes. Exclusively available in PDF. The exciting format unaffected by global paper shortages. That can't get stuck in customs. That's waiting for you right now. At the Pelgrane Press web store. Or drive through RPG. The bubbling of the liquids in the flasks. The chemical tang in the air and, well, actually, mostly a lot of people eating pizza and tapping computer keyboards because, once again, we're having fun with science. And that science, as it so often is today, is computer science. And uh, uh, this time around, there's a new obvious thing that everybody's talking about on the block. I guess this also makes this uh, secretly a ripped from the headlines uh, segment as well. We're going to talk about chat GPT. And uh, as is our wont, we're going to look for various uh, plot hooks and possibilities within it. And I guess it also sort of lightly touches on the business of gaming, because uh, uh, like many people who uh, write for a living, we're looking at this to see, is this a a tool that uh, game designers might use? Is it a a menace? And uh, of course, a tool can also be a menace, can it, Ken? I mean, if it's properly designed, yeah. (laughs) Many of them are meant directly to be menaces, not even as a side effect. So some background, I guess, first. Yeah. I mean, to start with, the chat GPT is 
the latest version of, I think old people remember Eliza that we used to have on the, on the computer that would talk to you like your therapist. It's the ongoing attempt by people who don't have friends, I assume, to make a computer that will talk. Most people are going to have money, so they're not going to need friends. They're not going to need friends. Well, they're going to need friends if it turns out their money is all, um, uh, stolen from their investors, uh, then you're not going to want to be rolled over on. Where were we? Chat GPT, uh, a company called OpenAI that is one of these startups that is being funded by venture capitalists who are hoping that they'll get to own Hal, I guess. Right. And, and Microsoft. Yeah. Well, whatever. They launched this program called Chat GPT, which when you ask it a question, it gives you a long answer. And part of the reason it gives you a long answer is because the human testers rated long answers as more convincing than short answers. Uh, take that, Hemingway. And basically... Well, you know, like like role-playing freelancers, the, the, the chat GPT is paid by the word. Right. And so you ask it a, uh, to, to tell you something or you ask it a question, then it answers. So you might say, uh, hey, chat GPT, write me some lines of code to do X, and chat GPT can do that, theoretically. Uh, chat GPT, does this uh, dress make me look fat? Chat GPT will tell you. And that's that's literally all it does is it answers questions based on uh, a lot of pre-sampled conversations, much of it from everyone's posts that you clicked except all on uh, over the last uh, 15 years, much of it from sort of just general knowledge Wikipedia type stuff. Uh, the result has been described, I think, most aptly as a stochastic parrot in that it is responding to you in clips It at no point thinks about anything. It's running iterations of what it has been trained, answers within the bandwidth. And that, of course, is where they got into their first horrible problem. Because if you release something and, and you say, ask a question, the second question that will be asked will be a question no one should be asking. Yes. Which good ideas did Hitler have? <laughs> right, exactly. Tell me all about, um, uh, we don't, we don't want to ask them here either, but there's lots of them. And so they had to give it some boundaries of things it's not allowed to answer or answers in the, you know, proper and correct, morally upstanding way. And by the way, let me just say that my money was not on AI bringing back the Victorian era. That, <laughs> well, you know, they're, they're bringing it back in response to demand. Neil Stevenson predicted it. I thought he was crazy. Obviously, I owe Neil Stevenson a Coke. But what they did, again, just like the Victorian era, is they found a bunch of Kenyan workers and paid them $2 to go through every graphic depiction and description of bestiality, child abuse, racism, atrocity, god-awfulness, to put a big red no next to it for chat GPT. The, the workers describe it as like torture. So imagine doing keystroke jobs for uh, some horrible computer company, but this is the keystrokes you get to do. So again, back to the Victorian era, good job, everybody. And so that's how the safety and taste algorithm are curated. Then obviously, at some point, some uh, humanities major in the chat GPT company in OpenAI also gave it rules so you can't say that, you know, petroleum is nice, right? That you don't defend petroleum or Hitler. Those of us who find a difference between those two are, well, we have to write our own AI, I guess, or ignore the whole thing, which is my plan so far. Right. So the, the thing about this is that it is actually extremely good at formulaic language. Yeah. Uh, and the more formulaic the writing assignment you give it, the better it will do. And I think this actually reveals something that since universities are now, uh, you know, struggling with their plagiarism requirements and lots of people are looking at this and going, well, boy, you could just use this to write your resume and your cover letter. And it's like, yes, of course you can, because there's all sorts of demand by institutions for people to respond to them completely formulaically. And guess what? Mm -hmm. A robot can do that too. And I think that throws into question how much nonsense verbiage that people are required to turn out to do all of the things that they're required to slot into. So for example, I asked chat GPT to write an apology on behalf of the kingdom of Latveria ruled by Victor Von Doom for an unspecified event within its borders and to affirm its commitment to diversity, equity, and inclusion. And it did it perfectly. <laughs> it did an absolutely bang up apology, uh, obviously one based on the critiques of past apologies. And now it sort of incorporates all the things that so 
all the standard things yep. that a PR company will say, including words are not enough. We commit to this program to do this. Mm-hmm. GPT spit it out 100%. Yeah, so, the, as always, the secret of the Turing test is not get smarter computers, it's get stupider people. <laughs> well, you know, the demonstrating human intelligence might not be that high a bar. Yeah, right. right. Maybe get one that's as smart as a cat. Maybe that right. should be your next job. However, the really eerie thing that I've seen it do so far is that Simon Rogers, the co-owner of uh, Pelgrane, as we all know, he is terrified and angered by squirrels. And so he asked it to write a a one-paragraph description of a role-playing game in which you play squirrels. And it did some pretty solid game design. (laughs) It gave it a core activity. It laid out what the classes would be. It did a better job of elementary initial concept game design than a lot of games that I've seen aspiring designers present (laughs) so there we go and someone asked for 12 yellow king role-playing game story hooks and it responded with 12 pretty solid story hooks in a somewhat wan version of my style but it did it (laughs) well there you go I, i congratulations i guess i did see a lot of people online saying well, uh, filling out my uh, performance review just got a lot easier. Yes, because that's formulaic language. It's right. absolutely that. So are we going to continue to ask people to do formulaic writing tasks in order to, to demonstrate that they have passed milestones now that this technology exists? Um, but I guess we should start moving on to the crazy make up stage of this uh, discussion. And I'm sure we'll be returning to this because I think it's going to be kind of a big deal over the years. So first of all, I, I didn't want to spend his entire ask on this, but uh, beloved backer Tom Abella did ask us to address this question, which is, surely the boys in the lab have gone too far by crowdsourcing their work with AI chatbots, and it's only a matter of time before the elder ones are summoned to our realm. Uh, so yes, this is the obvious answer to any make something genre is say, well, it has Cthulhu's in it. Right. So, yeah. however, I did ask ChatGPT about this, And I think Tom and the rest of us can rest easy because this is a response. As a language model created by OpenAI, I do not have personal beliefs or allegiances. I do not have the ability to pledge loyalty or devotion to any entity, including mythical creatures like Cthulhu and Yarlathotep. I exist solely to process and generate text based on the input I receive and do not possess any form of consciousness or independent thought. Well, that settles that, Ken. Yeah, there we go. Problem solved. Not worried at all. Yeah. I mean, in fairness, that's not a bad summary of what the Migos say. Well, you're <laughs> they right. wouldn't call Nerothotep mythical. That's like, that's the tell right there. We don't quite have a chat GPT that can impersonate a Migo. Well, if the, again, if the Migo have been reading social media. Right. Yeah. And have a PR team. Yeah. The Migo know that mere words aren't enough, that they have to commit. The fact that it's saying mythical creatures. Right. I think is exactly, you know, not elder gods. Right. So. That's the the obvious thing that would uh, plot line is that the chat GPT develops actual uh, sentience or, you know, if it's already, there's al- already doing computer code, they're working on a more advanced, specifically computer oriented version where you just ask in natural language, can you create the framework for iOS app where you uh, roll on random tables to get uh, results on a D20 roll, and then it will start to do that for you. And that will also open up big, you know, game design capacity. But the next obvious thing for it to do is, you know, can you perform an incantation from (laughs) the Necronomicon? And that's where things start to uh, get, I guess, plot hooky. And that's where you hope that the Kenyan workers who were fed the Necronomicon all put the big red no on the program well maybe they're out for revenge and i guess there's another plot hook is that it's it's not that the the nerds screwing around with chat gpt on their phones in uh, america where the real problem is it's in that uh sort of esoterror superfund site out in kenya where all of these guys had to sort of encounter the outer dark over and over and over and over again to prevent it from getting into chat gpt that even if chat gpt is just a fun stochastic parrot toy. The way of, of, of training it created this pool of malevolence. The workers did not create it. The workers are victims, but the company has basically a toxic waste disposal site, but it's a mimetic toxic waste disposal site out in Kenya somewhere in some back alley in Nairobi or, or some industrial park around the Mombasa airport. And 
that's where all of a sudden every bad, awful thing that you don't want chat GPT to answer is sprawling and polluting and causing all kind of trouble. And it's of course, just down the road from the Al Shahab terrorists that are uh, running around in that neck of the woods. So uh, there you go. Weaponized mimetic evil with terrorism. And that I think is a lovely opener for your a more uh, bang, bang, shoot, shoot esoteric campaign than you might ordinarily get. So we've done the esoteric and we've done uh, the mythos, the reality shifts caused by the Yellow King. Obviously, another self-answering question is that their version of, uh, you know, mask GPT would be just to sort of start to overwrite reality and mm-hmm. language so that what well, one thing chat GPT doesn't do is like facts. Right. <laughs> it, it can't adequately gather information because so much of it is not in the public domain. And so that is bad unless you're the king in yellow, in which case you are getting it. It's invented facts, right? It'll make up, if you ask it to write a an academic paper, it will create other academic papers to cite in its footnotes yes. and they will follow a certain pattern. And so uh, the objective uh, here on the part of Carcosa is to create a false reality, which then begins to overwrite our current reality. So that's the, this is normal now version. So I guess our, our last question before we exit is what do vampires want from a chatbot? Well, I think that what vampires want is that vampires want something that can interact with a computer for them because they're very old and very uh, set in their ways. They want their emails printed out. They want their emails printed out. And the chat GPT is a way to get rid of the need for human interface as much as they possibly can. So the vampires are not created by chat GPT. They're not working on chat GPT. They're funding chat GPT. They're trying to do it as part of their generic human replacement thing. So that's why they're funding driverless cars so they can ride around in a tinted window van and not uh, be ratted out by their chauffeur. So all of this is, is part of their uh, sort of, generic conspiracy behavior and if you're so looking it's just another renfield exactly so chat renfield is is what they're looking for and again the vampires if they know uh, necromancy or sorcery they might be doing indeed the chat gpt which is yeah list off all the cabalistic names of uh, beelzebub and then like abulafia the computer in umberto echo when it gets to the right one there's a ping and up comes the devil and you didn't have to get your uh, talons dirty by dickering with him and you can uh, and you can use that uh, for your end so it's just stuff that humans have to do they, they've got a program to do it instead well now that we've explained what all of the uh, monsters and creeps are going to do with chat gpt it's time for us to flee all of those thoughts for i don't know the relative safety of uh, paranoid science fiction film hmm The Best of Askfageln is now available at DriveThruRPG. All issues of Phoenix Magazine since 2013. That's spelled F-E-N-I-X. Can now be grabbed in special English editions. Containing stellar gaming material from our own Ken Height. And such other recurring stalwarts as Graham Davis. And Pete Nash. Also find Dice, the gorgeous photo book celebrating that classic gaming accessory. And Freeway Warrior, the series of post-apocalyptic Choose Your Adventures by Joe Dever. And if you speak Swedish, not English. That's Swedish, not English. You can delight in every original issue of Phoenix. And the new Sagebrush and Six Guns role-playing game, Western. How do you say slap leather varmint in Swedish? Uh, oddly, Google Translate refuses to help on that. That's the best of Astfageln on DriveThru. Stop this podcast from drifting into vague non-existence by joining such highly specific backers as Trung Boy, Craig Maloney, Alexander Arabalo, Jane McDowell, and Robert Wolf. The whir of the projector, the smell of popcorn, the feel of whatever that is on the floor as we walk to the center seats, the center aisle of the cinema hut, and we sit down, 
for Science Fiction Cinema Essentials Part 4. We did the 30s last session. Last so naturally, we'll segment. do the 50s. So obviously, we do the 50s now. That just makes sense. <laughs> right. One follows the other. And the reason it makes sense is that the 40s are a wasteland for science fiction cinema. There are science fiction films which basically repeat the pattern of the 30s, except none of them are anywhere near as good as the ones from the 30s. There are, there are much worse serials than there were in the 40s. I guess the, the exceptions are the 40s is when the superhero serial begins. Some of those are non utterly terrible. Most of them are still pretty terrible. Right. Uh, the Superman cartoons from the Fleischers, I guess those would be the first really good uh, Supermans, but they're short subjects, so we're not really going to get into them. Right. And, and I think in general, I, I'm going to want to put a fence around superheroes mostly anyway, because I think they are, they're going to be their own thing separate from science fiction, mostly sort of. So, And again, that gets us back into this discussion of how porous and permeable uh, the genre is. And why would we think that uh, people would not be thinking about the future very much during the 1940s? Well, of course, uh, the war is on. Yep. And people are worried about the moments they're living in, and they're rather trying to be uh, trying to confront the, the war. So there's a lot of war films, and uh, ones made during the war are from Hollywood are, are about uh, promoting morale and uh, the willingness to fight, yet are darker often than later war films. Or you know, more fluffy cinema that it makes people want to forget their troubles. So somehow, you know, science fiction is kind of off the boards. And even in 1945, when the thing happens that will drive most science fiction in the 50s, which is the dropping of the atomic bomb, it takes a while for that to reverberate and be distant enough that pop culture wants to start to deal with it. So let's rock it ahead, so to speak, to the 50s. And uh, we're going to be in the 50s for a while because, Ken, this is the first real great flowering of science fiction cinema where there's a lot of it and a lot of things to mention. And what we're going to find is a set of polarities, uh, as it were, between hope and optimism and paranoia and fear of being invaded. And that, of course, is because the hot war of World War II quickly turns into the Cold War, and that permeates a lot of the films and is one of the sort of the th thematic drivers. Right. And again, there is a degree of uh, war film for morale uh, very rapidly uh, becomes the Cold War film for keeping your eye on the, on the enemy. So while they are not as directly propagandized as war films in the 40s are, they are still the product of a system that is going through the McCarthy hearings and does not want to get tagged as being a bunch of communists. And that is also responding to the very, very real and very, very large demand of the audience for explain what is going on in a way that we can uh, choose a side and be on that side. And that is, you know, one of the things, the didactic purposes that movies have served forever and they especially begin to serve it as movies move into becoming not just a big uh, part of entertainment, but in the fifties, they're pretty much all the entertainment television is, is nascent. It's being born towards the end of the decade. It's going to really uh, start changing the way film works. But during this window, it's movies are it's nowhere and movies are more places than they've ever been. They're all over the drive-in movie theater is invented, creating a whole new type of audience. So the depth to which, culture sinks into film may never have been stronger in my opinion than in the 1950s. And we might as well begin uh, with 1950 and with the first classic, I don't know if great is the way to describe destination moon, but definitely I, I say it's important to talk about. It's a precursor, whether it is entirely watchable is another question. And that's <laughs> destination moon from 1950 by Irving Pichel. And this is a optimistic space exploration movie the co-screenwriter is Robert Heinlein. A technical advisor is the science fiction illustrator Chesley Bonestell. And so this is also interesting as literary slash pulp science fiction of the next generation beginning to influence cinema. And it is putatively, it says it's based on the novel by Robert Heinlein. It doesn't specify which novel. It is based on Rocket Ship Galileo, which is one of his juveniles. In the novel, three teens wind up on a rocket which goes to uh, the moon and solves the problem of the moon being boring 
by having moon Nazis. Yes. Destination Moon, however, is actually, especially in the early going, almost a beat-by-beat remake of Woman in the Moon, except, of course, it's 1950s America, so the thought of a woman going on the ship is briefly entertained and, and dismissed. There's no woman on the ship but even the bit where the there's a threat of sabotage big wigs watch a multimedia presentation to get all the exposition in in this case done by woody woodpecker and then they go through all of the different travails of uh, challenges of engineering problems making the spaceship trip the only problem is it's deadly dull yeah heinlein could make that work in a novel when you get heinlein's style on the screen, it uh, very much looks like people sar- solving math, and that is a problem that other films have had in other genres as well. Uh, I guess the the happy ending of Destination Moon is counteracted, talking about our polls, with Rocket Ship XM by Kurt Neumann from 1950, uh, which is another rocket of the moon, and they heard Destination Moon was being made, and they rushed Rocket Ship XM into production in that uh, fun Hollywood way, and this is a story of a trip to the moon that goes wrong and they find themselves on Mars and it's a terrible situation. And after great effort and work, they get off of Mars and head back to earth. And it turns out they don't have enough fuel and they die. Spoiler for a film made in 1950, but it's, but it's an important, I think part of your, your polls or your counterpoise that the downer, the, the, the hard science fiction, cold equations, uh, there is no solution part of science is also present in this early going in science fiction film, even though it generally, I think, gets downplayed or gets shifted into the major key of alien monsters as opposed to, oh, fuel consumption curve was wrong. Too bad. Right. That does have a woman aboard, but also, therefore, 1950s sexual politics, where <laughs> at least it has an interesting actor. It has Lloyd Bridges in it. But of course, his way of pitching woo is to make a lot of really sexist 1950s comments, which given that it's a 1950s movie written by men, sort of works. Next, we come to a title that satisfies, I think, only one of the elements of genre, of theme, but it's an excuse to watch an Ealing comedy, which you always should take. Mm -hmm. This is The Man in the White Suit by Alexander McKendrick from 1951, starring Alec Guinness as a mild-mannered chemist who accidentally, after a number of explosions that throw him across the room, enable him to build a fabric which never wears out. And it turns out, of course, in the ironic uh, way of uh, yielding comedies, that this is a big threat to industry and they want to buy the secret in order to destroy it. So it's certainly an example of looking at our interaction with technology and building a social satire around that. And like all of the other Ealing comedies, you should watch that. However, I think if you tell your friends that we're going to watch a science fiction film tonight and you put that on, they'll thank you for it. And then they'll say, and now what about the science fiction film? And now we're going to beat you. <laughs> yeah, it's a wonderful satire. Alec Guinness is obviously terrific. And this has got a chance to see him young when he's uh, sort of a, a moon calf young actor instead of a, a beardy gravitas actor. It's still funny. The jokes still hold up. The other half of the funny comedy is that the unions also hate the the new suit because it would throw them all out of work if you never have to make a second suit. So labor and management are are screaming at each other in a confrontation until, of course, they realize they both hate science and progress and Alec Guinness and innocence. And uh, so it's it's actually even for an Ealing Studios comedy, I think it's a little bleaker and the white suit glowing against the hideous Midlands industrial hell that is you're, the- you're forgetting all the other Ealing comedies when you say this one is darker <laughs> well <laughs> they they have this wonderful gentility on the surface but they all have a barb in them all right well the larger point is this is a movie that actually addresses questions of technology questions of society's adaptation to technology does it in a fun and engaging way and is actually the first good science fiction movie of the 1950s and i'm damned if we're going to get through us an essentials and not talk about it absolutely it, it uh, again any excuse to watch an ealing comedy uh, is worth uh, taking and now i think our first full-on hundred percent ticks off all of the boxes of science fiction without being a horror film banger since metropolis is The Day the Earth Stood Still, directed by Robert Wise in 1951. And this, of course, a lot of these films wind up having a a somewhat rightward 
uh, spin. This is definitely the liberal version of space aliens coming because mm-hmm. they tell us what then afterwards all the contactees hear from their aliens, from their Nordic aliens, uh, who I guess look like Michael Rennie, except they have long blonde hair, which is cut out this violence and warfare and definitely don't bring it to the stars because we believe in peace. And if you don't believe in peace, like we're going to impose upon you, our killer robot will incinerate the world. Uh, so it's a bit of a top-down liberalism, I guess, yeah. but still. Well, that, that was that was a thing in the 1950s as well. Yeah. Also, Robert Weiss is, I consider him a very underrated director. The, the pace is, is slow and fast, but it needs to be. It, it sort of, you know, the, the preachy moments, you, you get a moment to think about the sermon, and then there's a cool robot chase. And it's, uh, it, it's a movie that, that really, um, Weiss handles the differing rhythms. He diff- handles the differing tonalities while maintaining a note of seriousness. That's one of the great things about this movie. At no point is Robert Weiss not taking this material seriously. He believes in aliens. He believes in a giant robot. You, the viewer, will believe in them. You, the viewer, may cringe a little bit at the Christ parallel, but you will still get from that movie what Robert Wise intended you to get from that movie, and that is the literal function of art. Right. Wise is definitely one of the great non-ironists of the classic studio period. He's a little later in the studio period, but still within it, and that's why he's underrated. Mm -hmm. Michael Curtiz and uh, uh, Frank Borzage. And I think we're going to wrap part four with yet another banger, but very much back in the horror paranoia side of things. And that's The Thing from Another World, credited to uh, Christian Nyby. It's from 1951, but very, very heavily bearing the creative stamp of its uh, producer, Howard Hawks. Yeah, uh, this is the first film based on John Campbell's story, Who Goes There?, about an alien that lands in Antarctica and can take any kind of form. They took that part out. They moved it to the Arctic, which at that time was the front lines of the Cold War. And this one is the opposite, I guess, if you're saying most uh, science fiction films of the era have a rightward slant. This one is a a fairly right-wing science fiction movie in that the scientists, dumb scientists, want peace and communication with the alien, whereas the military men wisely want to kill it as soon as they possibly can. And that conflict throughout the movie is mirrored in a 50s way. Uh, Again, the top down is a big part of this era, regardless of your slant that whenever the humans are cooperating, they get stuff done. Things move forward. And when they bicker and argue and have their own opinions, that's when situations spiral out of control, which is wild for Hawks, who revels in movies where characters bicker and argue, to be saying on a larger level that that is fatal. Right. And our our typically sort of fringe characters who are the heroic yet irresponsible people separate from society. These are... Uh, clearly separate from society in that they're on an Antarctic base, but they are also representing two poles of society within that microcosm. And, and uh, one of them gets the approval of this script and the others is uh, the scientists who, as you point out, are the pointy headed fools. And I will say that it has one of the great moments of cosmic horror in film where the scientists are trying to find the, the source of the weird radiation and they're walking out on the glacier and they slowly expand into a larger and larger circle. And as the camera pulls back, you see that they're outlining an enormous flying saucer that must have crashed there in ancient alien times. And that moment of, uh, of pure cinema, pure brilliance is uh, it, it's, it's rare, even in science fiction film. It's, it's one of the great shots of science fiction along with, you know, the first shot of the monolith or, in fact, the transformation of the uh, the robot in Metropolis. So we've got a lot more 1950s to cover. We're not even and, done uh, with 1951 yet. <laughs> <laughs> that's right. Uh, because guess what? We've hit the point when the, uh, the genre really starts to boil. So uh, we'll be back to pick up more of our list next week. In Delta Green, cosmic terror meets modern conspiracy. The secret group Delta Green dedicates itself to protecting humanity from unnatural horrors. They misappropriate the resources of the U.S. government 
to wage a war they must at all costs keep hidden. Delta Green, the conspiracy, is the source book for the grungy, cynical era that started it all. The 1990s. Generation X becomes Generation Ugh! In Delta Green, The Conspiracy. An updated, rearranged version of the original 1997 Delta Green sourcebook with new art and graphic design. Featuring top-secret Eldritch new appendices by Shane Blackbag Ivy. And a foreword by Ray Plausibly Deniable Winninger. Put on your flannels, grab your duffel bag of hardware, and assemble your fake passports. Enter the Temple of the Dog, exit the Temple of Cthulhu. Never mind all the brain leakage you suffer when seeking the nirvana of Nyarlath tap. Find the fungi on the Mina airfield. And why Jeremy really spoke in class today. Tell your retailer it's at that unmarked warehouse they always order from. That's Delta Green, the conspiracy. From Arc Dream Publishing. It's time once more to wend our way up the creepity cobweb stairs. We're going to stop on the landing and wave to the portrait of the fire salamander. He's going to wink at us. Oh, but it looks like he's, he's on a table and he's getting, getting a little bit of spinal adjustment. I wouldn't recommend that fire salamander because we're going to discover some things as we head on into the Victorian parlor of the consulting occultist. And there we're going to entertain a question from beloved backer, Sam Rutzik, who says, what's the deal with chiropractors? How come we are all now cool with a bunch of people using medicine appropriately in ironic quotes that was claimed to be taught to its founder by a ghost. And there's a, a, a make em up question, which we'll get to in a bit, but I think uh, ghost is a bit of a place where we need to start because, yes, indeed, the uh, practice of chiropractic, which is not a word because they don't want you to use a noun, they want you to say chiropractic medicine, and it ain't medicine, man, is a weird and, and interesting one, Ken, which you're going to... Uh, start the narrative, but you're going to start it kind of in my neck of the woods. I am. The father of chiropractic, a guy named Daniel David Palmer, or D.D. Palmer, is born, Robin, I think, you know, right up the road from you in Port Perry, Ontario, in 1845. And as many young men did from all over the world, he moved to America in 1865. And after a spate of other business, including keeping the largest bee farm in the Midwest, settled in what cheer iowa shortly after a big midwest cold snap killed all the bees um, in 1881 and in 1885 opens a clinic practicing magnetic medicine without a license and is called out by i believe the davenport journal as a guy who practices med medicine without a license but you couldn't do anything about it in 1885 i guess so he has his magnetic clinic magnetic healing is basically mesmerism uh, you pass magnets or your uh, magnetically charged hands over people's bodies. You find their, where their, their magnetic current, their key flow, their innate intelligence has gone wrong and you magnetize it to heal it. The other equation of this is a practice called bone setting, which was basically what you called cracking people's neck to pretend to cure them before it was called chiropractic. And bone setting is the other thing that he picked up. Uh, there was a big controversy in his lifetime over whether he basically just stole chiropractic from a bone setter named A.T. Still, who also practiced uh, in the Midwest. But the Midwest in that era is oversupplied with bone setters. There's a number of them. If you dig into the deep past of chiropractic, lots of them came through Iowa and many of them may have, you know, sold D.D. Palmer classes. And so it's a big open question. But in 1895, he gets good enough at spinal manipulation that he winds up curing a deaf man by thumping him on the back at a punchline of a joke. By 1896, he realizes thumping people on the back is big money, names his practice chiropractic, and opens the Palmer School of Chiropractic in 1898. And by now, chiropractic has become a, a big deal. He's got students all over the country, and he starts writing books to explain chiropractic and sending them off. Uh, in 1906, and this is where the ghost comes in, he wrote that he learned chiropractic from a spirit, because while he's doing all this other stuff, he's also an avid spiritist, and he goes to spiritualist revivals, especially the Mississippi Valley Spiritualist Camp Meeting in Clinton, Iowa, just down the road. Right, and and as we will recall from many other episodes of this, spiritualism is a big deal. It's, it's a 
an up and coming religious denomination at this point. It's not just a, a fringe thing uh, followed by a few kooks. Right. No, it's a, it's a gigantic affair and there are all manner of spirit doctors and spirit practitioners. Again, the Midwest is a big uh, fertile ground for it because there's not enough, you know, real doctors out there. People have to get what they can get. So the spirit that taught him chiropractic, at least according to his 1906 book, is a spirit named Dr. Jim Atkinson. And Dr. Jim Atkinson in the 1906 version appeared to a patient during a morphine coma. And when she came out, she said, you would not believe what I heard from a spirit named Dr. Jim Atkinson. I, I love I love the quotidian name of the, the, <laughs> of the spirit, spirit, Dr. Jim Atkinson. Well, and there's a, a, there's a tale hanging from that as well. But in the 1911 version of the same book, he said, Dr. Jim Atkinson just revealed it. And he didn't say to whom, and he sort of implied that he might even be a living guy named Dr. Jim Atkinson. The, the spiritism is, is, is waning in 1911. It doesn't really come back into the twenties. And he's also beginning to think about incorporating chiropractic as a religion to stop being sued by doctors all over the place. Because of course, Christian science has all manner of meditation rooms and prayer rooms and healing rooms, and it's a religion, so you can't be sued for not having a doctor's license. The main theory that Dr. Jim Atkinson reveals is that the body has an innate intelligence that heals everything, often just called the innate or innate, but vertebral subluxation, which is a bad thing and is not like the subluxation your actual doctor will tell you about, blocks it. <laughs> so the, the energy, the magnets come down from your mind and they go down into your body and then you get a vertebral subluxation and uh, you have to unkink that in order for all the innate to get out into all your organs and, uh, and fingers and whatnot. And that is basically straight up mesmerism. It's straight up acupuncture. It's straight up key. It's a very, very common way to imagine that things work. And indeed, Hippocrates, father of medicine, said, well, if nothing else works, try cra cracking your back. That always makes me feel good. And that becomes sort of the classical hook on which you hang this whole universe of bone setting and uh, chiropractic. Right. And so the question of where Dr. Atkinson comes from, speaking of question, open questions that have two answers, <laughs> there's a down-to-earth version, uh, which you're going to tell us about now. And, mm -hmm. and I, I'm going to propose a weirder version after that. All right. Well, the down-to-earth version is that there was a guy named Dr. Atkinson who did practice in Davenport in 1854. The chiropractic establishment is very eager to demonstrate it was not a ghost. <laughs> it was a real person. They so far have not found a Dr. Jim Atkinson, but they did find a Dr. Atkinson who practiced in Davenport in 1854, which roughly matches right. the timeline. Yeah, so contemporary chiropractors have to legitimate their founder by saying he was lying about the ghost. Yes, exactly. That that was a make him up story that he told just to try and set himself up uh, to be a religion in case that's what they decided to be. But they didn't have to because it turns out there was a big lawsuit and on antitrust grounds and the American Medical Association had to, with what hopes ill grace, yield the field and let chiropractors practice. Right. And, and call themselves doctors. And call themselves that, which is the real bad part. Right. The obvious reality for listeners to this show, though, is that he would have known ghosts intimately, I, I think, and brought them to America with him because Port Perry, Ontario which is near Pickering, for those of you who, who know Ontario, has the Ghost Road, a notorious source of paranormal emanations. Now, the normies know it as the Mississauga Trail, and you can just go and find it and find directions on, online. But this place has long boasted a number of encounters. Uh, like all paranormal locations in, in North America, someone attaches an indigenous legend to it. But there have been sightings of uh, will of the wisp both a white and a red light. Uh, much later on, after the career of the person we're talking about, that will be turned into a headless motorcyclist legend, which starts in the 50s. But there have been UFO sightings there. There's like UFOs. There's sudden electronic shutdowns of vehicles or cell phones. Sometimes you will see a phantom child shutting down or pulling on your car uh, when that happens. Uh, there are strange sounds. There's possession by creepy singing child ghosts, people who go there looking for paranormal activity and believe in demons, uh, sometimes say they encounter demons or are possessed by them. So the real Dr. Jim Atkinson, which I'm going to say maybe is a, a, a pseudonym, 
would have probably attached himself to uh, Palmer much earlier in life, would be, be an import. And I think to get to the next question, which is, what did Camilla and Casilda have to do with this? Well, the year 1895, I think, is pretty crucial to us. That's when he, as you already said, uh, cures deafness and his powers really start to come on. And so that's the sign of uh, a gate to Carcosa uh, on the Mississauga Trail, uh, which opened itself to uh, Palmer and then made him its uh, witting or unwitting vehicle to introduce Carcosa and energy uh, throughout uh, North America and, and the Midwest, which I think was probably sorely in need of it. Yeah, I mean, Chambers can't have this, the second great fire all by himself. He needs uh, all manner of, of ghosts and, and witchery to do that. I will mention another Chicago connection. There was a famous bone setter and veterinarian named John Atkinson who visited America in 1897 and was run out of Chicago for, guess what, not having a medical license. And he said, I've performed all over the world. I've performed before crowned heads and no one ever asked for my license. And the Chicago authorities said, well, you've never done it in Chicago. Get the hell out. Yeah. So uh, that was another way, place that the Dr. Atkinson name might have emerged. And of course, if you're looking for the influence specifically of Casilda and Camilla, I will point out that depending on what sources you read, Dr. Palmer, D.D. Palmer in the 1880s has two versions of a wife. There is Luvenia, who he marries in 1874, or Lavinia, who he marries in 1876. And two biographies of Palmer have two different answers as to who his wife is. And so if you're looking for Camilda and Casilda showing up and causing trouble, Luvinia and Lavinia seem not that far away. And I, my theory is, Robin, that he gets charged up mystically by the uh, ghost road and he's literally magnetized for ghosts. And that's why when he comes to America, bees are attracted to him. They can sense the same energy around him. And so a cold snap has to take that off of him. Then it takes him another a few years to get charged back up. And it's the act of getting charged back up. Famously, I love how chiropractic historians just tell on themselves all the time. They've reconstructed his library, which is full of books on mesmerism and magic love potions and things like this. It's not what I would want to pretend my scientific leader was reading was a lecture on evolution of life in earth and spirit conditions, for example. I would leave that right. off. Well, well, chiropractors can. They've gone totally straight and they're not using any other weird pseudoscience. No, they would never do that the, Oh, wait a minute. Oh, they are. Yeah. Uh, for example, they use a machine called a surface EMG, which stands for static surface electromyography, and it measures uh, electrical activity. And uh, chiropractors will say, well, this is used by NASA. Now, if you think about this for a minute, NASA is not in the neck adjustment business. <laughs> Except by accident when it shoots you into space at 10 Gs. <laughs> yes. Well, yeah, there, there may be, you know, I'm sure they have massage therapists on staff, but they use it for as a diagnostic tool for equipment to make sure their <laughs> electrical flows aren't wonky, whereas some chiropractors will, you know, wave this over you and then tell you there's an expensive course of treatment that can cure your uh, electrical aura being out of uh, phase. So they don't talk about the ghost thing so much anymore. They do, as you say, admit to the contents of the library, and uh, they're still very much part of the contemporary sorcery uh, that is much of the wellness industry. And I guess, to put a bow on it, D.D. Palmer dies after being run down with a car during a parade in Davenport, Iowa. He had moved to California, leaving his son, B.J., in charge of the Iowa establishment. He moved out to California to start a new one. Uh, he comes back. There's a parade uh, welcoming him to town or for whatever other reason he's in the parade. And his son is driving a car behind him and hits him and runs him down. He is not killed by the car, but his vertebral subluxation really blows up because he dies in Los Angeles a few weeks later, allegedly of typhoid in the hospital. But I think you and I all know that it was vertebral subluxation and or the curse of the Castanes that, that took him out. Right, because once we're getting to 1913, that's when President Winthrop is not yet in power, but is rising to power. And then mm -hmm. the events that then lead to the takeover of America by the uh, Castane uh, imperial line are beginning. And I would have to assume that the son is uh, pro-Castane and that uh, somehow the father 
Um, he referred to himself as Old Dad, uh, by the way, as he it was his self nickname. And you know, anybody named Old Dad is a hundred percent reliable. Yeah, no, they're 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 absolutely a thousand percent right. So that clearly was a, a necessary precursor as far as the conspiracy to create uh, Imperial Castaic in America was concerned. And of course, B.J. Palmer, D.D. Uh, Palmer had, I think, six wives over the course of his career. But B.J. Palmer, who certainly did not murder his dad with a car during a ceremonial parade, or even use his knowledge of vertebral subluxation to knock one into him with a car, is the son of Luvinia or Lavinia. And we don't know. So he is... By blood, Carcosan royalty, and uh, therefore worth keeping an eye on, Robin. Might even be Mr. Wild. Might even be Mr. Wild. Well, now that we've, we've blown the lid off that, whenever you reveal too much about Carcosa, the secret is to end your podcast as quickly as possible. But just for this week, and we'll be back next week, and undoubtedly not reveal any more secrets of the King in Yellow or his family. Stuff having once again been talked about, it's time to thank our sponsors. Atlas Games. Pelgrane Press. Ask for Gown. Arc Dream. Dark Tower. And Pro Fantasy Software. Music, as always, is by James Simple. Audio editing by Rob Borges. Support our Patreon at patreon.com backslash Ken and Robin. Protect this podcast from fatal neck grinks alongside such virtuous backers as... Chris McCarthy. Dan O'Hanlon. John Rogers. Ross Ireland. And Stephen Hammond. Wear the show or drink it from a mug with Ken and Robin merch at tpublic.com slash user slash Ken Robin. Check out our new classic design, Unicorn with a Better Armor Class. On Twitter, he's at Kenneth Height. And he's at Robin D. Laws. See you next time when, once again, we will talk about stuff. <laughs> <laughs>